1: Brought to you by the Naked
2: Scientists, the Cambridge Science Festival podcast.
3: Hello, and welcome to the Cambridge Science Festival podcast. With me, Mira Senthilingam from thenakedscientists.com. Coming up on today's podcast, we find out what goes on in our brains to enable our memories to form. We investigate if holidays into outer space are soon going to be a reality, and we find out the answer to this.
4: I'm Josh Redman. And I want to know, how do you make cheese?
3: All that coming up on today's Science Festival podcast. But first, children from schools around the county have been having science workshops as part of the festival. So I caught up with a group from Newnham Croft Primary School as they visited Fenner's, the university's sports centre, to learn about the science of sport. I managed to talk to organiser Caroline Ward during the session to find out what it was all about.
4: We're basically getting the children to look at all the different sporting attributes to make them realise that they don't have to be good at just one thing to be good at sport. So just because they're not fast, it doesn't mean that they couldn't be good at accuracy or couldn't have good coordination skills, those sorts of things. In order to help get this message across, what activities have you got going on here? We've got 12 tests for the children to do, and they each test different sporting attributes. So balance, coordination, speed, agility, accuracy, hand-eye coordination, all those things. And they have a score sheet, so they go around in little groups and they um, basically are challenging themselves to try and improve their skills. So they have three goes on each activity. And the volunteers are giving them little tips as to how they might improve you know, their technique, those sorts of things.
3: And how have the sessions, you've already had a few this morning, so how have they been going? Oh, we've been
4: absolutely delighted. I mean, not only have the children really, really enjoyed themselves, but they've really wanted to have a go at everything, and, and, you know, they've really not wanted to leave, so it's been really good, really rewarding. And I guess it's lastly, do you think they've got that you've got the message across? I hope so, I really do. And, I mean, obviously, we, you know, we've been talking to them about certain sports that they could do. So, for example, if people have been really good at accuracy, we've been talking to them about maybe going along to the 10 pin bowling alley and you know giving that a go as a sport not just as a recreational thing and similarly talking about things like squash and badminton and tennis things that they haven't necessarily tried at school yet but they might be really good at
3: now most of the events couldn't be done without the help of the many volunteers from the university taking time out to lend a hand so i spoke to jane leary who was volunteering at the sports session She was manning the vertical jump station when I saw her, so I asked her about the activities she's been helping out with. Okay, I've been helping out on the standing jump and on the vertical jump and on the batak. And how have the kids been doing? Great, they're full of enthusiasm and uh, try and encourage them to do better each time, and they've really liked that, trying to better their results. Are there any particular stations you've noticed as being more popular? Uh, I think they like the Batak because uh, it's a real challenge to try and hit the buttons. You have to have, uh, it's testing your reaction time basically and you have to press a button when a light appears uh, but this uh, appears in a random order so it's quite challenging. And which particular sports is that one good to train you for? Well, um, they've got an example here the Jensen Button has got a really higher score in that uh, type of uh, activity so somebody who needs really fast reaction times like a racing driver, yes, yeah, ideal. <laughs> Well, the children seem to be having a blast, so I spoke to a few of them to find out which activities they'd enjoyed the most. Here's Poppy from Year 5. I've been on the
4: sand and jump, the lunchbox one, the sprint challenge. And what's been your favourite activity? I like the sprint challenge because I like running. Is there anything else you like? I liked the jumping thing because that was really fun.
3: What did you have to do in the jumping thing?
4: Well, you had these wooden things and you had to stand on the end and the other bit would flip up and you had to catch the things on the end. And what was it, beanbags on the end? Yeah, beanbags, and then it got harder with a ball and a beanbag and then you had to do two and catch six.
3: Sounds quite hard. Here's Poppy's classmate, Jacob, telling me about which activities he'd been on.
4: Um, the speed test, um, some kicky uppies, the bat some throwing into cones and scores, some jumping, beeping, and I'm about to do the bowling.
3: And what's been your favourite activity so far?
4: Um, it's probably I have to be speed one because
3: running. Yeah. Why is that your favourite?
4: Well, it's it's the best thing I'm at, and um, I like running to get fit and stuff like that. And you have a lot cool. of energy.
3: Yeah. They certainly did have a lot of energy. One of the most amazing features of the human brain is the ability to remember. Whether simply remembering the colour of someone's hair or the answer to a question, our brains can hold an incredible amount of information. And one scientist who's been studying this ability for years is Professor Stephen Rose from The Open University. He came to Cambridge to talk about how our memories are made.
1: So memories must be stored somewhere in the brain and there are a lot of different ideas about it, but the general one is that when we learn some new skill or some new task, then new connections are made between some of the 100 billion nerve cells and neurons in the brain. The connections are called synapses. So you can imagine that you could encode um, the information in a memory in a new pattern of connections between different cells in the brain. The working hypothesis that most of us have, and there's a lot of evidence about it, is that when something novel happens, a new pattern of impulses will perhaps connect cells that were not connected together before, and cells that fire together wire together. So there are changes in the structures of the synapses, the connections between those cells, which actually strengthen the connections and make them more likely to fire again. Now that's ultimately a structural change, the synapses change in their shape and their size and you can show that using an electron microscopy and so on. You can show it physiologically looking at recording. I'm a biochemist by background, and I'm much more interested in the biochemical sequence that leads to that particular sort of change. And essentially what happens is that when the new impulses arrive, there is an activation of particular neurotransmitters and neuroreceptors, particularly something called the NMDA glutamate receptor. And when this is activated, it sets up a trigger of processes in the cells, which ultimately activate genes and result in the synthesis of new proteins. And it's those new proteins, a class of proteins called cell adhesion molecules, which include the amyloid precursor protein, which are then inserted into the synapse to change its structure.
3: And so which particular parts of the brain are memory stored in?
1: That's a very difficult question because memories are diffuse, they move around, and we remember things in different ways at different times. If you think of trying to remember a person's name that you've forgotten, you sometimes may think about the clothes they're wearing, you sometimes may think about what their name starts with, or when you last saw them, or some such cue or another. And clearly the ways in which memories are stored in the brain are separated and diffuse through different regions. But most memory traces start in a region fairly centrally in the brain called the hippocampus and they stay there for a little while and then in a sense they move out and they're dispersed through different brain regions and when we're remembering something as opposed to when we're learning something many many brain regions are involved even regions like the visual cortex if we're trying to remember a picture
3: why are some things easier for us to remember than others
1: I mean, memory isn't there by accident. It's there as an evolutionary process. Our memories have evolved to help us survive in the world. So those things which help us survive better are more likely to be remembered than other things. We remember things that are important to us, emotionally significant, much better than we remember things which are of trivial significance. A lot of what we see we remember only for a very short period of time. It doesn't get encoded in what's called long-term memory. Long-term memory requires that sequence of protein sequence events that I talked about. But Also for things to get into long-term memory you need to have some emotional input so there's an involvement of neurotransmitters of hormones, another region of the brain the amygdala is particularly important in helping you strengthen important emotionally significant memories which may be a person's face.
3: You say um, that things like the visual cortex can sometimes be stimulated so what's involved when say somebody has a photographic memory?
1: Photographic memory is a fascinating phenomenon. What seems to be surprising is that all of us, almost certainly as young children, before we're about seven or eight, have a photographic memory. If you think back at your earliest memories, most of us remember things which are like snapshots, pictures which are associated with colours or smells, very sensory but very stationary. You don't have a moving flow of just, as it were, of one little picture out of what's come out of one's life. And most of us change to a more linear form of memory as we grow older. Some people don't seem to make the switch, and they're the people whom we talk about as having a photographic memory. Now, many people are very enthusiastic. I wish I had a photographic memory, but it's rather bad for you because it means you find it very difficult to forget to get rid of the information which isn't important and for most of us most of the time forgetting is at least as important as remembering
3: that's certainly true i'm sure we all have things we wish we could forget that was professor stephen rose from the open university
1: science in its element the cambridge science festival
3: now it's time for today's festive question
4: I'm Josh Redman, and I want to
3: know, how do you make cheese? And here's Naked Scientist Ben Valsler with the answer.
0: Well, Josh, that's a really good question, but I'm not sure how much you're going to like the answer. Basically, to make cheese, you need gone-off milk. Now You can start with any kind of milk. You can use cow's milk, sheep's milk, goat's milk. They all make slightly different types of cheeses. But you add bacteria to the milk. And that means it becomes acidic because the bacteria break down something called lactose in the milk into lactic acid. At this point, you add something called rennet, which contains an enzyme called renin. They used to get this from the stomach lining of cows, but now there's a vegetarian version we can use as well. And what the rennet does is make the milk go lumpy and it separates into what we call curds and whey. Now the curds are the lumpy bit that will become cheese and the whey is basically a watery waste product. When you heat up the curds and whey, the curds will sink to the bottom and become firm curds. Now this is the basis of cheese and it's at this point that you can add extra flavours so you might add some salt or you can add mould and this is how you get blue cheeses, they're just full of mould. But that's basically how you make cheese. But there are thousands of different types of cheese, starting off with different milk, using different bacterias or rennet from different sources. So there's a huge variety in cheese. But realistically, to make cheese, you need some gone-off milk and a bit of cow guts.
3: Thanks, Ben. Now, you may have already heard the term space tourist and recall the few people so far whose wealth has enabled them to experience the wonder of space travel. Well, now, companies like Virgin Galactic are trying to make this more common and space scientists across the globe are involved in projects to commercialise the travel into orbit. One scientist working in this field is Duncan Law Green from the University of Leicester who told me more about the concept of space tourism.
5: Space tourism is developing new and cheaper ways of getting into space that reach the point where a large fraction of the population can actually afford to travel into space
3: how many people have done this as tourists to date?
5: To date five have paid in the region of 20 to 30 million dollars each for Sawyer's trips to the International Space Station.
3: What projects are in development at the moment to make this more common and you know more frequent for people?
5: Well, there's a very large range of projects going on. We can break them into two groups, suborbital and orbital. Suborbital is where the spacecraft travels sufficiently high to reach the edge of space, 100 kilometres above the surface of the Earth, but it isn't going sufficiently fast to reach orbit, so it's going less than about 17,000 miles an hour. The major uh, projects for suborbital are Virgin Galactic, operated by Richard Branson, Blue Origin, Uh, There's a project by EADS Astrium, which is a major European aerospace firm, and there's a small-scale project by Armadillo Aerospace, which is owned by John Carmack, who developed the Doom and Quake video games.
3: What challenges are the designers of these projects facing?
5: Well, the major issue, obviously, for a commercial passenger service is safety. You want to make sure that your passengers have paid their $200,000 or whatever safe and sound when they come back. Current manned orbital spacecraft have a risk a fatal accident of around 1 in 70. So they want to make it at least 100 times safer than that, which gets you around the level of safety of the first generation of commercial airliners in the 1930s. And the challenges there are to have a robust airframe, really safe propulsion systems, make sure that the rocket engine starts when it should, each time, every time it doesn't detonate in any way it doesn't fail in any way, so that's the real challenge
3: There must be environmental impacts of these developments
5: There's a number of possible environmental impacts Uh, you have to consider the carbon dioxide emissions the carbon footprint possibility for toxic chemical release because a lot of these rocket systems may use dangerous chemicals you need to handle them disturbance to nearby wildlife uh, sonic booms and, and their effects on the locality the risk of dropping debris on nearby population, all this kind of thing. But the US Environmental Protection Agency is very careful about that and makes all the developers, all the spaceport developers, go through a very long process that they have to justify all this, they have to account for all the possible risks and make sure that the spaceport will be safe and have a minimal environmental impact.
3: What's the future of this and what further developments will there be?
5: The next step after Spaceship Two is probably a long-distance, point-to-point suborbital vehicle that would take you, say, from London to Sydney in an hour. So you'd be flying several thousand miles an hour up above the atmosphere and curve up in an arc and then come back down at Sydney.
3: The awe of space and shorter flight journeys. Who could ask for more? Well, one person who thinks we're capable of even more is Virgin Galactic President Will Whitehorn who also came to the festival to discuss space tourism. So he told me more about the aims of Virgin Galactic.
2: Essentially, Virgin Galactic is going to be an operator of a space launch system. Our first operation is going to be taking people into space who've paid up to $200,000 to go. But we have a longer-term industrial application that we want to use the space launch system for. So we want to be an operator who also carries cargo into space in the future, science experiments into space and we want the ability to use this system with its very low environmental impact and very low cost to launch low-Earth orbit satellites as well.
3: And what was the inspiration to actually start this?
2: When we saw a project being developed to win this X Prize by Bert Rutan back in 2002-03, we realised that this was a kind of technology we could grapple with, we could understand, and we believed it had a future being taken forward.
3: How do your designs and the materials you use, how are they better than what's already used, and how are they better for the environment?
2: For a start, they're not metal. So they're very, very light. Carbon composite is a very light material, so you use very little energy to get it up into the atmosphere. The aircraft that we're developing, for example, is the world's first really true all carbon composite plane, and it burns hardly any fuel. And it can let, get the spaceship well above the atmosphere to the top of the, above the tropopause, up to about 50,000 feet before it even fires a rocket. It then needs to be a much smaller rocket than it would need from the ground. The rocket itself is, has benign materials in it: rubber and nitrous oxide. So it causes very little environmental impact. As a result of that, it's also low cost. You can pretty much say that anything that costs a lot of money in transportation is using more energy and having a bigger environmental impact. So every time the shuttle takes off, for example, each shuttle launch costs about $750 million and has the same impact and output as nearly the whole population of New York for a week. Whereas this system is going to have about the same environmental impact as a business class ticket from London to New York on a normal aeroplane. So it really is revolutionary in terms of the energy it uses in getting to space.
3: And how does it actually work? So how does it fly differently?
2: One of the things this does in space is instead of trying to re-enter the atmosphere like the shuttle does and fly a flight profile and land on the atmosphere in effect, it changes shape in space into a shuttlecock and drops into the atmosphere and then at 50,000 feet changes into a glider... And without using energy, any energy at all, simply glides back down to the airport. So it's a very simple system, but it's a very unique technology because nobody had ever thought of changing the shape in space of the vehicle to allow it to get into the atmosphere more easily.
3: And um, how far into space are you going to take people? So what will the actual experience involve?
2: The experience in total for people will be about two and a half hours. They'll fly up to 50,000 feet, they'll be launched in the rocket. They'll go into space, they'll see the beauty of the planet, they'll experience weightlessness and be able to move around in the cabin. They'll be able to then come back into the Earth's atmosphere. So they will get a pretty comprehensive experience with about three days' training for it before they fly.
3: That was Virgin Galactic President Will Whitehorn and before that, Duncan Law Green from the University of Leicester. Well, that's it for today's podcast. But in the next podcast, we bring you the highlights from the main weekend of the festival, where Doctor Who and the Daleks are expected guests, as well as a very special polar bear. We'll bring you coverage of the many hands-on activities taking place all over town, as well as informing you on the science of beer. I'm Mira Senthilingam, and this edition of the Cambridge Science Festival podcast was produced by thenakedscientist.com.